this Christmas Sunday. The day that we're supposed to consider the birth of the Christ, we consider the burial of the Christ. I'm excited about this because both are about the body of the Christ. I said last week that that's what these two sections at the end of chapter 19 are all about. What about the body? And, and why does it matter? What about the burial? And why does it matter? And it matters for many reasons that we will consider this Christmas Sunday. But my Christmas scrooginess is hopefully not just scrooginess for scrooginess' sake. I hope it's scrooginess for Christ's sake. My desire is not for us to celebrate the birth of Christ less, but more. My desire is not to in any way minimize the significance of the birth of Christ, but to maximize it. And my fear is that some of the, the Christmas stuff, all the trappings and tinsel, are what maybe actually minimize the beauty and the wonder and the worth of the birth of the Christ. The typical Christmas story we tell also might do this, and not the, the Santa story. I'll spare you what I think of that. You know what I think of that. Um, but I'm talking here about the typical birth of Jesus Christmas story we all know, right? The story that is summed up in all those terribly inaccurate nativities that we all decorate our houses with. I have done my Christmas myths message for you a couple of times, so I won't do that. But just carefully read the Bible, and you'll see for yourself that many of the things that we include in this story just aren't there. Right? Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. There's no Mary riding on a donkey. There's no last-minute rush to get to Bethlehem as Mary's going into labor, knocking on doors. There's no innkeeper. There's no inn. The word translated inn is translated elsewhere as room or the upper room. There's no stable. There's no stable in the Bible and the birth of Jesus. Yes, there is a manger, but we know from history and archaeology that homes in ancient Israel regularly had mangers in their main living room. Your most valuable property back then was often your animals. That's why there are shepherds out watching their flocks by night so the animals don't get stolen or eaten. The other animals would often then go inside and sleep inside the house so they don't get stolen or eaten, thus the manger. And so the actual story is probably quite simple and, and fairly unimpressive. Joseph has traveled to Bethlehem because that's where he's from. That means he probably has family there. My wife and kids right now are staying with family because that's what you do when you travel to your hometown. They arrive in Bethlehem. They're actually there for a while, it seems, probably a month or two. The time then comes. There's not enough space in the upper room that they are sleeping in to have a baby. So they go downstairs into the main room. Mary delivers her baby, probably with other women helping her. And Jesus is wrapped up and laid in a manger, which might have been a fairly common practice back then. There's no star above the house. There's no wise men. They show up a few years later. So basically, if you have a nativity, you can take everything out, except Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and you can add a normal little house and maybe some friends and family members there. That's it. It's the same thing we've just seen with the death of Jesus. There's nothing particularly unique about the physical death of Jesus. Thousands and thousands of people were crucified at the hands 
of the Romans. And there was nothing particularly that unique about the physical birth of Jesus. And that's the whole point. The birth of Jesus would have initially looked like any other birth in Israel at that time. It's not the what that is significant. It's the who that is significant. It's not the how he was born that is so amazing. It's that he was born that is so amazing. It's who was born that is so amazing. And my fear is that we dress up the story with all the untrue, unnecessary detail and spectacle because we're not all that impressed with the simple fact of what is the most amazing and mysterious thing that has ever happened. God has become man. The transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator and sustainer of the universe has entered into the very universe he creates and sustains. God has taken on flesh. The Son of God has taken on a body. And this is the most important thing that has ever happened. This is the very center of history, the very center of reality. Everything depends upon this moment. Christ is born. And today, we're going to see that Christ is buried, and we're going to see, hopefully, that both of them are about the body. We confess in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Born and buried. In between, that's what we've been considering. The suffering, the crucified, the died. Now we get to the buried. Why is the burial of the body of the Christ important? Don't forget, finished. Don't forget, it is finished. This is part of that. And that it is finished is, it's everything. So let's consider this morning the role, the burial of the body of Christ plays in our salvation. Christ was born, Christ was buried. You have been born, if you are sitting in this room today. You will be buried, which means you will have died. Can we have any hope in the face of the king of terrors that is death? Remember last week, when you underappreciate your real problem, you end up overappreciating all your other problems. Your real problem is sin. In sin, we were guilty, filthy, and dead. What can be done about dead? Are you ready to face the death that comes for all of us? Five points this morning. I'm going to try and build an argument with and progress through this argument to kind of culminate at the end and the, and the reason for all of this, uh, the solution to that one real problem. So point number one, we're going to see first that the death of Christ is what makes disciples of Christ. Then number two, we'll see that the disciples of Christ then make confession of Christ. That's what's happening in our story. We'll then see that the confession of Christ includes the burial of Christ. Number four, the burial of Christ dignifies the body of Christ. Now, here's the point of all this. We're going to see that the body of Christ defeats death itself. That's why we're here. That's why this is so important. So let me read the text for you first. I will read in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. 
I encourage you to pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you this Lord's day. After these things, Joseph, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let me begin our time first with a, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that Christ is born. We thank you that Christ is born and Christ has already lived and suffered and died, was buried and has risen again for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we want this to be the central truth, the central reality of our lives. Father, we want to celebrate the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of this Christ every single day of our lives. We increasingly want to live our entire lives and do all that we do in light of what Christ has done, in light of what he has finished for us. Father, help me to make that clear today. I pray that Christ would be the point of this time. I pray that we would see him. I pray that you would help me to preach not just about him, but to, to preach and to proclaim him, to hold him up and present him as, as beautiful and as worthy and as desirable and as, and as good. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, use your living and active word to draw sinners to the Christ to his life. Father, please do now in this time what we cannot do for ourselves. Please help both the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, the death of Christ makes disciples of Christ. Look at verse 38. Here, towards the very end of the book, we are introduced to a new character for the first time. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph shows up in all four Gospels at this point in the story. There's probably not anything to this, but it is interesting that Jesus begins his earthly life born in the presence of a Joseph, and he ends his earthly life buried in the presence of a Joseph. The first, seemingly a relatively poor man. The second, a relatively rich man. We learn a couple of different things about this Joseph from each gospel. And I'll read them to you. Matthew 27, 57 tells us that there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. So Matthew tells us that Joseph is rich and that he's in some way a disciple of Jesus. Mark 15.43 tells us that Joseph was a respected member of the council and was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So that tells us that Joseph was part of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body over Israel. Remember, the very group that has just condemned Jesus to death. And so Luke makes sure and adds in Luke 23, 50, that Joseph was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented 
to their decision and action. So we don't know if Joseph wasn't at the trial the night before this. We don't know if he abstained from the decision. We don't know if he opposed and fought the decision but was overruled. Yeah, we just can't say. But that's the extent. That's all that we know about this Joseph. And so remember the question as you read Scripture, the question to always be starting with and asking yourself, why? Why is this here? These Gospels are short, selective accounts of the life of Christ. Many details have to be left out. So always ask why the details that are included are there. Why Joseph? And why specifically introduce him for the first time here right after the death? Well, remember why John writes at all. He has just reminded us why he does so. Look up at verse 35. He writes, that you also may believe. It's the whole point of this book, to show you Christ. That you may believe in Christ, that you may live. We'll get to more how believing in Christ is life in a bit, but for now, if you're here with us this morning, it's Christmas Sunday, you're, you're visiting, or you're not a Christian, our desire for you is that you also may believe. We want you to understand who you are according to God's word and who Christ is and why your only hope in this life is this Christ who is life and that you get this Christ who is life through faith, through trusting, believing in him. So stick with me and hopefully I'll explain more. But our desire for every single person in here is that you also may believe. And why is that our desire? We'll go back to our text and look again at Joseph. John tells us in verse 38, like Matthew, that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but John adds, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Stop there. In this book that is all about belief, John gives us many examples of right belief and wrong belief, true faith and false faith. If the whole point of the book is to get you to believe in the Christ, it makes sense that John would want to show you what that does and does not look like through various examples and individuals. And that's why Joseph is here. Joseph is another example of an examination of faith. And he's an important one because he shows us more than any other the... Named after Nicodemus, right? Victory. Such a good, such a good name. But unlike Joseph, we've already met Nicodemus in chapter 3, briefly mentioned in chapter 7 as well. Unlike Joseph, Nicodemus is not mentioned in any of the other Gospels, only here in John. Why? That you may also believe. We're going to consider in our next point what a secret disciple or a night disciple is. And I'm going to argue that it's no disciple at all. But Joseph was a secret disciple, now look at the rest of verse 38. He was that, and then Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Listen, that's not secret. That's not fear. That is a bold and a dangerous move. Publicly going to Pilate, asking for the right to honor the one that was just condemned to be crucified as a criminal the one Joseph's fellows and peers had killed. And he's not alone. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had come earlier to Jesus by night, now comes by day. 
It says, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It's probably hard to hide 75 pounds of stuff that you're kind of carrying around. So we've gone from night to day, from secret to public. What happened? Why the change? Why the move from secret to public, from not disciples to clearly disciples? Look at the beginning of verse 38. After these things. After what things? After the death of Christ things. The things. The it is finished things. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die. And he just did. After these things. And then Joseph and Nicodemus suddenly burst onto the scene. What just happened? John 12, 32 just happened. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's what just happened. The crucified king in complete control, even hanging on a cross, draws Joseph and Nicodemus to himself. The death of Jesus draws Joseph and Nicodemus to himself. Now think about it. These men knew of Jesus. Nicodemus had personally spoken with Jesus. Some of the most important words ever spoken in history were spoken specifically to Nicodemus. You must be born again. If it's still Jesus speaking in John 3.16, then it was to Nicodemus that was said the most famous Bible verse ever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We don't know if Joseph ever met Jesus, but we know that he was part of the Sanhedrin who were very aware of Jesus' teachings and signs. It was to this very council that some had gone in John 11 to report what Jesus had done, which was what? Raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus literally gave life to a dead man, spoke life into existence. Joseph would have known all of that, but still he remained a secret disciple until 1938. Why then? It's because of the death. It's because of the powerful, life-giving death of Jesus. The shameful death of Christ's cross was far more powerful and impactful on Joseph and Nicodemus than the whole beautiful life of Christ's ministry. As Calvin brilliantly puts it, his death is more quickening than his life. I like that. Quickening means life-giving. His death is more life-giving than his life. They knew him. They didn't really believe. He dies. They believe. His death gives life. This is why we preach Christ crucified. This is why we talk so much about death and blood. Because of what the death and the blood were for. Because of what Christ's death does. There are lots of people who are happy to talk about the life of Christ and all the nice things and the good deeds that he did and how we should do nice and good deeds uh, like him. So that's all fine and good. But apart from the death of Christ, that's all worthless. Apart from the death of Christ and what that death does, all the nice and good deeds will remain nothing more than relatively nice and good, for they will not and cannot solve the real problem that plagues our world, that plagues us all. The life of Christ is nothing apart from the death of Christ. The two can never be divorced. 
But for now, the point is that it is the death of Christ that makes disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. It's the death of Christ that makes dead people alive. We just considered Christ our King's closing commission in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Make make followers of me. Well, this is how. His death is how. The preaching and proclamation of the death of Christ is how. That you may also believe. That's the goal. And it starts with hearing of the Christ who died to save sinners. See the power of the death of Christ in the complete transformation of Joseph and Nicodemus. See evidence of the complete transformation of Joseph and Nicodemus in point number two. Point number two, the disciples of Christ make confession of Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest with you here, and I'm also going to amaze you with awesome alliteration. But discipleship is difficult to discern. Discipleship is difficult to discern. Three Ds, two prepositions. Discipleship is difficult to discern. This is why Christ's very first parable is so important. The parable of parables, the parable of the sower or the soils, Matthew 13. Jesus shows us that there are responses to him and his word that initially look like positive responses to him that end up withering and fading and proving to not be positive responses at all. This is why we go slow. This is why I'm very slow to affirm faith in another. Having lived this myself, every one of my children, except for Vera, I guess, would tell you that they believe in Jesus. They would pray the sinner's prayer with me right now if I asked them to do it. And in the Christian culture that many of us grew up in, that would be it. You prayed the prayer, boom, you're, you're a Christian. Be very careful with that. I am still very much waiting and watching I'm trying to discern discipleship and faith in my girls because this is the most important thing. And because Jesus has warned us that there are things that appear to be faith that are not faith. And John does something similar in his book by giving us some examples of false faith. Were we reading closely and carefully when John describes Joseph in 38 as a disciple of Jesus But secretly, for fear of the Jews, we would immediately think back to chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. Look back there, 12, 42, and 43, because John has already used this language, and he's using it here on purpose. John 12. Remember, there are two parts to John. There is chapters 1, verse 12, that's often called the book of signs, all about the ministry of Christ. And then there's chapters 13 through 21, sometimes called the book of glory or the book of the sign, the the death and the resurrection of Christ. But the end of chapter 12 uh, serves as a sort of summary and transition from part one to part two. And it's not good. Notice the heading above, the unbelief of the people. Well, what about the leaders of the people? John 12, verse 42. Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear, there's our word, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So let's be very clear here. You can't love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God and actually know God. You can't prefer the glory from man and believe in Christ. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus and fear man more than God. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not confess the Christ. Flip from chapter 12 back to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 40. John 5, 40. There Jesus told them, You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Coming to Christ is life. We'll see why in a moment. It would seem wise to come to the one who is life, but they refuse. Why do they refuse? Look at verse 44. I think, this is, I, I think John 5, 44 is just one of the most important verses for our culture right now. It's, it's such an important verse in our social media obsessed, which means self-obsessed, our performative individualism, our triumph of the therapeutic age. John 12, 44, 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That is a penetrating and often disturbing question. Whose glory are you seeking? From whom do you desire praise? Why do you do what you do? Why do you want to be seen doing what you do? Why do you post what you do? And Jesus is clear. You, you cannot believe in me when you are more concerned about yourself and others and your glory and the glory that you receive from them. He's very clear there. Listen, the love of praise and the pursuit of praise is deadly to faith. That the love of praise and the pursuit of praise and the fear of man is why we so often do not confess the Christ. But the Christ is clear. Matthew 10:32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So one of the ways you discern discipleship is by confession of Christ. Disciples of Christ confess Christ. And that's what's happening in our text. This is Joseph confessing it. This is Nicodemus confessing. They are secret night disciples no more. Ultimately, there is no such thing as a secret disciple. They were secret disciples. They did fear the Pharisees. They did love the glory that comes from man, but not anymore. In claiming the body of Christ, they are confessing Christ. And again, this is no mere profession. I believe in Jesus when it costs nothing. Now, this could cost them everything. There was great risk in this stand. They go to Pilate, the brutal political ruler of the land, against the wishes of the Sanhedrin, the cruel religious rulers of the land. And they boldly and publicly confess their faith in Christ, in their caring for the body of Christ. Consider your confession of Christ. Do the people around you even know that you are a Christian? Do they know that you believe that there was a Jewish man who 2,000 years ago 
lived, suffered, died, and actually rose again from the dead, and that he did all of that as your substitute and sacrifice to save you from your sins and from an eternity in hell? Does that sound a little crazy to you? Is that maybe why they don't know that we are Christians? Consider your confession of Christ. We are approaching the new year. This is my last time with you until uh, the new year. Maybe you are making some goals, um, some resolutions for the new year, fitness goals. How about witness goals? Is that something we think about at all? What if 2024 was the year that we were intentional about making sure that our family and our friends, our co-workers and our neighbors know that we're Christians and know what that means. That's, that's a great, simple place to start. Disciples of Christ make confession of Christ. Point number three, the confession of Christ includes the burial of Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Why does the burial get so much attention in the creed when we give it so little attention? Visitors, again, those who, uh, who do not know Jesus, I told you earlier that our desire for you is that you also may believe. Believe what? The gospel. The gospel just means good news. This book that we're studying is referred to as the Gospel of John, the good news according to John. And what is that good news? The classic summary statement is found in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the short summary statement of the gospel. Christ died for our sins and he was buried. Why the buried? And related to that, why the body at all? Why did God have to become man? That's what I want to answer in our final two points. But I want this to be like a brief bridge point to get us from the disciples to the burial, to, to connect discipleship to the body and burial of Christ. So let's just observe a few things for our text, from our text for a moment here, and then get to our final two points, which uh, will we'll draw some interpretations and applications. So we've met Joseph and Nicodemus. It seems that the job of Joseph is permission, uh, Nicodemus preparation. Joseph goes to Pilate. Nicodemus gathers what they need for the burial. In the verse 38, it says they take away the body. You can picture that. Again, the Romans don't care about what happens. They're, they probably aren't going to help. They'd be happy to leave Jesus up there uh, to rot. So it's unlikely that they're giving any assistance. So he, he's up. He, he's nailed to a cross. Either the cross would have had to have been taken down or they would have had to climb up to get him. Nails would have had to have been removed. This would not be an easy or a pleasant affair. It's unlikely that Joseph could do this on his own. He's a rich guy. Rich guys have servants. Maybe the servants are helping. Same with Nicodemus. I doubt he's just lugging around 75 pounds of spices by himself. So some people think servants are helping. Some people think that the women are helping. Remember, the women are at the, at the, the cross. We just saw them in verse 
25. Some argue that maybe John himself, who was there, even helped them in this process. We, we just, we don't know. But look at verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. This is nothing like the Egyptian practice of embalming. Organs were not removed. The, the purpose of the spices was not to preserve and prevent decay. Uh, the Jews very much expected the decay. Uh, they have found, we found many tombs in the area from this period of time. And there's often, there's a central room. You'd step down in uh, to the cave and there'd be one main central room with, with a slab on it there. And they would lay the body on the slab and they would leave the body to decay. Then there were little chambers off of kind of that, that central main room. And after a year, they would go back into the tomb. They would collect the bones. They would place them in a little box called an ossuary. And they would put them into one of those smaller side chambers where it would remain. We don't know exactly what Christ's tomb was like. But the point is that the spices were not for preservation. Uh, it was simply to, to mask and minimize the smell as the body did lay there and decay in that main central room. But many have pointed out this is a lot of spices. Apparently this is a lot more than the normal amount. Some argue that it's an amount fit for a king. I don't know. That, would be, that would fit John's kingship theme, but I don't know if that's true or not. The body would then be bound. They would take the body. They would prepare the body. They would bind it with the linen cloths while kind of the spices were woven in between the cloths and kind of packed in lovingly wrapping and, and caring for the body. We don't really have any sources about what the Romans tended to do with the bodies of their crucified victims. It's safe to say it wasn't this. Most likely the bodies were just thrown carelessly into a mass grave. I want this one to be true. You've probably heard it. But some argue that they took the bodies and they threw them into Gehenna. You've probably heard of Gehenna. You've probably heard Gehenna explain that there was this always burning garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. They would take the bodies in them and they would throw it in. Um, that's actually not true. There's no biblical or archaeological evidence of this Gehenna being some burning garbage dump outside of the city. Um, go, you can look it up. Whatever the Romans would have done, it would not have been what the disciples here, confessing the Christ, have done in the burial of the body of Christ. A true faith in and confession of Christ will always include this, the burial of of the body of Christ. There is no gospel without the burial of the body of Christ. But we still have not yet answered the why question. Why? Well, let's get to that. Point number four. The burial of Christ dignifies the body of Christ. Let's talk about the burial and the body. I'm going to borrow from myself here for a second because it was almost exactly three years ago, Christmas Sunday, 2020, that our Christmas text was John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's been three years for us from birth to burial, and it's the body that stands at the center of both. But again, what's the big deal with the body? It's the who that's the big deal. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember, the whole point of this book is to demonstrate to you that Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, is God. 
And so then when we get to verse 14 and we see that this word who was God is taking on flesh, we see that it's God who is becoming flesh, the Son of God. And that's what Christmas Day is supposedly all about. And that is definitely what we are meant to be about every day. It is definitely the most important thing that has ever happened. All of us are shaped by a handful of significant major life events. What would those significant shaping life events be for you? What would you say are the biggest events of your life that have had the most profound impact on it? There are both positive and negative events that, that shape and influence our lives. A wedding, a divorce, children, a death, major injuries and illnesses, jobs and moves, and all kinds of big events. What are those in your personal history? John wants us to see that this, the incarnation, is the shaping event of the whole of history. And thus it should also be the shaping event of your personal history as well. Nothing more important than this. God has become man. And the word John uses, actually in the Greek, it's it's, it's surprising. He doesn't say God, God became a man. He says God became flesh, sarks. In the Greek, and it was kind of, it was kind of like a gritty, crude, dirty word back then. Uh, Paul uses it to mean like sinfulness. John uses it more to refer to our physicalness, our our finiteness, our our weakness, our our humanness. And with the incarnation, the very Creator Himself is entering into His creation. The, the Creator is taking on the qualities of a creature. The the author is is writing Himself. Into the story, God has become man. The Spirit has taken on flesh. When we arrived in North Carolina Monday after another long odyssey south, we pulled into Melissa's mother's house, and what did she have waiting for us? She had chili con carne, right? Chili with meat. Carne. Incarnation. And I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but it would help us to understand how scandalous this idea would have been. Jesus is, is God with meat. Sarks. That's what that word would have been like. It's, it's God taking on flesh. God in flesh. Christmas is Christ is born. A, a baby. A, a body. And why did Christ come in this way? Why did the word become flesh? Why did he take on a body? And it is quite simple, really. It's because you are flesh. It's because you are, this is important, it's, it's you are, not have, you are a body. In many churches, the reading of Scripture is followed by a quotation of Psalm 40, verse 8. The, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Sorry, Isaiah. And we probably think of the grass brown, and we think of Jim and Juliet's beautiful garden over here, and it's all fading and browning in the winter. Um, but no, Isaiah's not talking about grass and flowers there. Two verses before, he says, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Verse 7 says, surely the people are grass. The grass and flowers are symbols of us. They're symbols of people and flesh. And so what that verse really means is that the flesh withers. The people fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
And it is, it's, it's this. It's this fading flesh that the Word takes on. Why does He do it? Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Again, it's since we are flesh, He took on flesh. Listen, this fact alone gives great dignity to the body. I had to remove a whole other point. I wanted to do a whole other point, but time, you know. You guys won't let me preach for more than an hour. Um, But we can't really miss here that in the burial dignifying the body of Christ, the dignifying of the body of Christ also then dignifies the body, your body, my body, the, the physical and the material, the body in general. And the scripture does this from beginning to end. Creation in the image and likeness of God includes the body. The incarnation, God himself taking on a body. The suffering and death of that body in our place. The resurrection of that body. The ascension and reign of that body. The return of that body. And then the new heavens and the new earth. Physical, material, resurrected, restored bodies. The Bible is very pro-body. The Bible gives great dignity to the body, the physical and the material. And this is so important today. Remember that the central truth at the core of our modern or postmodern or post-postmodern, whatever it's called, the central truth of our culture today is the denial that there's any authority over and outside of the self. And that denial increasingly includes even the body. It is this denial of the body and the authority of the body and the dignity of the body that lies at the heart of so much of the the gender craziness and the sex silliness today. But the Bible, it's very simple. The Bible is very clear. The body is good. It's very good. And we we are our bodies. Our bodies reveal to us who we are, who we are to be attracted to, who we can pursue romantic relationships with. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. There's the body. And their sex and gender, those are the same things, their sex and gender, part of the very image of God. And so that makes the body very important. And the truth that the body proclaims, very important. And thus the lie that our culture proclaims about the body, very dangerous. Your body matters. The body matters. And that is revealed in creation and incarnation and redemption and resurrection. That's revealed in the care that is given to the body of the Christ in his burial. His burial matters. It dignifies the body of Christ. And in so doing, dignifies the body in general. He was born in a body, he lived, he suffered, he died in a body, and that body was buried. Point number five. Let's close hopefully clearly with the big and main reason why. Here's here's the whole point of all of that. It's that the body of Christ defeats death. Back to Hebrews, why did God become man? Why the body? Hebrews 2.15, he took on flesh that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. That's it. And that's everything. Because death is the end of everything. We've been working on putting things in perspective. If I get a paper cut sitting in the doctor's office waiting for test results, and then right away the doctor tells me that I have stage 4 pancreatic cancer, I don't care so much about the paper cut anymore. Right? Perspective. A minimal problem has been banished by a massive problem. What's your biggest problem? What's your massive problem? It's death. It's death. You're going to die. And death is the end of everything. Life is everything. Death is the end of life. Death is your problem. Why is that your problem? Why is there death in the first place? Remember our telos from two weeks ago. We have, we have a design. We have a purpose. You were created to know and be known by God. You were created to love and be loved by God. The God who is life and joy and peace. And this God who is very kind and who was very clear from the very beginning, Genesis 2.17, the day you disobey me, you shall surely die. He's not being vindictive. He's not being mean. He's not some power-hungry tyrant out to get us and spoil our fun. Oh, he's God and he's good and he's wise. And so he knows that he made us for him. He knows that he is goodness and beauty and love and joy and that we will find those things only in him. <clears throat> he knows that he is life and that we will find life only in him. And so he tells us very kindly, hey, don't be foolish. He said, hey, don't, don't rebel against and reject that which is goodness and beauty and love and joy and life. Misery and death are the only logical result from rejecting that which is life and joy and peace. And that's all sin is. It's the rejection of God as God. It's, it's the rejection of the God who is life. And that's why there's death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And the death of all is the result. I wanted to do a whole biblical theology of death here. We don't have time. But scripture refers to death as an enemy, as an end, as a terror, as a torment, as a wage, as a curse. Having told the man what would happen if he sinned, God tells the man after he did sin, Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. To the ground. To the grave. And that's why the body, and that's why the burial of Christ. Here is Christ, having taken on dust, having died as dust, returning to the ground, returning to the grave in fulfillment of the curse for you and for me in the place of sinners for the salvation of sinners. For that is why he has come. That is what he is doing in his birth, his life, his suffering, his death, and his burial. Look quickly at 41 and 42, and we're going to focus on this in chapter 20 in the new year. But did you notice this? Because I think this is really, really interesting, and John's going to play with this um, in chapter 20. Man, we just saw, fell in a garden, 
Man sinned and was cursed with death in a garden. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You see, the problem begins in a garden. The solution is finished in a garden. Your problem is sin and death, and you can do nothing about it. Jesus came to do something about it. And that something required a body. And Jesus is God, and God, by definition, cannot die, but a body can. That's why Christmas. That's why incarnation. That's why he takes on the body, lives in the body, was crucified, died, and buried in the body, all as the substitute sacrifice for our sins. And in taking on our sins and our death and carrying them with him into the grave, he does away with those sins completely. It is finished. They're, they're buried. He defeated death definitively. It is finished. It's the death of death in the death of Christ. We're about to sing, pay attention. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. So he's born to die that we no more may die. This is the gospel. This is the birth, the life, the death, and the burial. It has to include the burial. And starting next time, the resurrection of Christ. And this is what we celebrate every single Sunday, again and again and again. This is the truth that we live in light of every single day because this is our very life bound up in the Christ who is life, who died and rose again that we might live. This is what we preach and why we preach that you also may believe. So that's your very simple, obvious application. That's your application if you're here with us this morning and you don't yet know Christ. What could be bigger and better this Christmas than the gift of life? Repent and believe. Turn away from sin and self and turn to this Christ who dies that sinners might live. Death is coming for every single one of us. Scripture claims that our only hope in the face of that death is this Christ who died. Please come find me or come find Pastor Mike, or talk to someone around you after the service. you have any questions about that? And so that's your application as well if you do, by the grace of God, already know Christ. See how full and finished his work is for you. See how definitively he has dealt with your one true problem, sin and death. Read all your other problems in light of his solving of your one true problem. Again, this is my last time getting to talk to you before the new year. You're, you're making those plans and resolutions uh, concerning that new year. What are they? Just re remember what you are for. Remember who you are for. Resolve in some way to pursue him more in the year to come. Resolve to uh, pursue him more through his living and active word. There, there's simply no such thing as a mature, strong, fruitful, contented Christian at peace who is not devoted to God's word, who's not full of God's living and active word. What is your plan to commune with God through his living and active word in the year to come? 
What's your plan to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the year to come? Don't forget that which is of most importance as you look to the year ahead and as you, as you make some of those plans. And as you consider the burial of Christ, I hope you'll think on Christmas morning something about the burial of Christ. But as you do, don't forget your burial. Romans 6.4 We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. My prayer is that we would all walk in that newness of life to the glory of God, to the the edification of of one another, and, and to the good of our neighbors around us in the year to come. Christ has defeated death. It is finished, and that is everything. Let me close you with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word that reveals to us this Christ who is life. Father, our words can never do justice to the word who was God, to the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who lived, suffered, and died, and rose again, that we might be restored to your presence to fellowship and relationship and communion with you. Father, these things that are of first importance are so often for us of second, third, fourth, and, and fifth importance. Father, I ask that you would continue to help us to, to reorder our loves. I pray that you would continue to fix our mind on and fill our mind with the goodness and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would increasingly Consider the whole of our lives and live the whole of our lives in light of his life and death and resurrection in our place. Father, we want Woodside Community Church to be a place where um, Christ crucified is proclaimed faithfully and powerfully. Father, we cannot do that apart from you and, and apart from your spirit. So we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word here corporately. Father, we pray that you would bless the the speaking of your word individually as we go, many of us, to family members tonight and tomorrow and uh, this week as we are going to be around uh, people that we love who may not know you. pray that you would give us wisdom and, and boldness and confidence as we seek to more faithfully confess the Christ who is our life. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we are in desperate need of your help. We thank you that you have already done and finished all that was required for us in Christ. May we trust him and love him. In Jesus' name, amen.